We will come to a time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We're going to talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2? If you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 857. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And when you found that, would you stand? And I'm going to ask my brother Glenn if he will read that passage for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, would you stand together? Be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing now on this time and his word. Trust him to meet with us as we do it. Let me pray. Spirit of God, we ask you to just continue meeting with us now as we come to this word that we believe you inspired these men to write down. Uh, this is not simply the witness and recording of history uh, that just took place a long time ago. These, we believe, are your words written through those men that we might continue to be taught and grown and have Christ revealed to us more and more as we study them, as we look at them. So I pray that you would accomplish that purpose in us today as we look at this passage from First Peter. I'm trusting, God, that... Uh, as you say in your word, uh, that when you send it out, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today, whatever it is. 
And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, if you've ever uh, traveled across multiple time zones in a single trip, particularly if you've done any overseas travel, you will be familiar with something that is referred to as jet lag. Ooh, jet lag, a word that strikes fear in the hearts of travelers. Yes, jet lag, um, a condition most often experienced after flight travel, hence the name, where our circadian rhythms are disturbed to a degree such that our, our sleep patterns, our ability to concentrate, apparently even our digestive health can be adversely affected. Now, I know some of you already are like, sorry, Canadian what? No, not Canadian. Circadian <laughs> rhythms. <laughs> uh, the National Institute of General Medical Science has defined circadian rhythms as physical, mental, behavioral changes that follow a daily cycle in the life of almost every living organism and which are determined primarily by the cycles of exposure to light and darkness. That's that's how those things are set. But the problem is, we all are incredibly accustomed to our own rhythm. We get locked into that rhythm and, and ingrained in it, so much so that whenever we transport ourselves into an alternate cycle of exposure to light and darkness, our bodies and minds are like, uh-uh. No, 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 no. I, I, I resist that. I reject that. I want to keep operating according to this previous rhythm that I'm used to. I don't, I don't like this one. And so they, they push back on, on whatever, you know, reality the clock says now. They're like, no, 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 it's this. So for instance, uh, my first year of Bible school, our choir went on a European uh, tour to sing throughout Europe. And so when we traveled from Alberta all the way to Austria, now we arrived at the place we're staying. The clock says 4 a.m. after crossing eight time zones. And yet my mind and body were like, no, 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 no. I'm still wide awake. I'm hungry for dinner like it's 8 p.m. the previous night. I'm, I'm stuck back here in this rhythm, even though there's a new reality in front of me. And although I know a lot of you in here have done much more overseas travel than I have, uh, a great deal more, what, what I've experienced and what I've also heard and, and read from some of you is that one of the best ways to overcome jet lag, one of the best ways to transition through that difficulty is to reset all your clocks your watch, your phone, your computer, reset all the clocks according to the new time zone. And as, as quickly as possible, adjust your meal times, your bedtimes, and everything else according to this new time zone that you're now living in. That, it is said, is one of the most effective means of resetting your circadian rhythm according to your new location. So we are concluding this little mini-series today called Questioning Faith where we've been looking at three questions that I believe God is asking to each and every one of us as it relates to the practice of our faith and the way that what we observe can often lead us to resist, to rebel against what God is calling us into. And as a result, we miss out on the fullness of all that he has for us. So we looked, first of all, at the question, where have I called you to go? And we talked about how the size of the obstacles that we see in front of us can often lead us to rebel and resist where God is calling us. Then we looked at the question, what do you have? And we talked about how the size of what we have to offer can lead us to do that. Really looking inside ourselves and seeing how little we have to offer can cause us to miss out on the fullness of all God has for us because we think it's not enough. Today, the last question I want to look at together is the question, 
Who have I called you to be? Who have I called you to be? Which actually is a question directed to all of us together, corporately, as this gathering of God's redeemed people called the church. It's directed to all of us together, actually, instead of a question given to each of us individually. The problem, however, is that, as you may be aware, communities, gatherings, are made up of individuals, right? So what that means is that when it comes to how we answer this question individually, it's going to have an incredible effect on how we live out the answer to the question corporately. How you understand the answer to this question yourself is going to determine how we live it out together. So take a minute, just think of this question yourself, individually, yourself, personally. How do you answer that question yourself? What has God called the church to be? What is this gathering of God's people for? What do you think? According to our passage, what we are called to be is a gathering of living stones built together into a spiritual house, really a, a temple for God's presence to dwell that is founded on and held together by Jesus Christ. That we are to be a people belonging to God. That's what Peter calls us. We are a people belonging to him and that the purpose of the church, why we gather, is that we might be a community of gospel formation and also a community of gospel declaration. That's, that's the Bible's answer to the question, who have I called you to be? The problem for many of us and the thing that keeps us from entering into the fullness of all that God has called us to be as a church is that we don't often see the church that way. The Bible's answer to the question is not always our answer to the question individually. Now, some of us answer the question that way. Some of us totally have the Bible's answer ourselves. We're like, that's what the church is for. And I see evidence of that all around me in your lives throughout the week. And, and as I interact with you, I, I see people living that out. And it's so cool and encouraging. And yet, the reality is, like, we, just, we are just immersed in, we are, we are daily inundated and pounded with the surrounding culture around us of this consumeristic culture, a culture that is about radical individualism in a, in a way that's unprecedented in history. North American culture is this crazy, just radical, it's all about me. And, and the reality then becomes for us is that even if we don't state it that way, for many of us, we still live as though the purpose of the church is really for me. I don't mean me, Wes, I mean like us individuals. We think church is about us, it's me. That what God has called the church to be is really a, a spiritual buffet that we come up to. And each Sunday we come in with our plate and we fill up with the things that we like and that meet our own personal needs and preferences. And then I go and have my meal and then I go home. It's, it's about me. And then the moment that the church no longer has the stuff on the buffet that I like, uh, uh, um, you know, now it feels like there's too many songs on Sunday. Actually, there's not enough songs. The sermons, you know, they're too long. Sermons aren't long enough. Uh, they don't have the programs I like anymore. Why do we have to sit on these hard pews and not soft benches? Whatever it is, and all of a sudden the, the church isn't meeting my needs anymore, and I'm gone. i got to go find another church because the church is supposed to serve my needs, so this one isn't doing it anymore. I guess I need to find another one. And I know that that's how we often think because for many years that's exactly what I saw the purpose of the church to be as well. 
It's about me and serving my needs. I need to find one that meets my needs. Which, if we think about it, is absolutely just a mirror reflection of the consumeristic culture we live in right now. And what I'm saying is that when we answer God's question, who have I called you to be like that? Namely, that the church is something that exists primarily for me. What I'm saying is that what we're experiencing is a form of spiritual jet lag. It's spiritual jet lag. And what I mean by that is this. When, when Jesus saves you, when he calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light, he transforms you and transports you into a whole new gospel reality. A whole new gospel time zone, if you will. But because the culture that we're now called to be aliens and strangers among is the exact culture that the time zone we've been called out of, it's so familiar to us. It's what we're so used to. Just like with jet lag, our hearts and our minds can still want to function according to the former, more familiar rhythms than according to the new gospel reality we've been transported into. And the result is we continually, again and again, we miss out on the fullness of who God has called us to be as his church because of that reality of living in this spiritual jet lag. So my, my great prayer and hope for us today, this morning, is that we might begin to reset our clocks this morning, that we might begin to adjust more and more every part of our lives according to the new reality that God has called us into. And finally know the fullness of all that he longs for us to experience as his church. And I want to do that by looking at our passage this morning in just two ways. As we try to understand this question, who, who have I called you to be? And I want to do it by just looking at those two purposes that we talked about God's church having. That God wants his church to be. I want to show you that God's desire is that we might be a community of gospel formation. And then that we might be a community of gospel declaration. Just those two things, a community of gospel formation and declaration. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage in 1 Peter? Follow along with me. I want you to see this yourself. As we look at this final question that God is asking us now, all together corporately as a church gathering, who have I called you to be? Okay, so let's look first of all at God's desire that his church would be a community of gospel formation. A community of gospel formation. Now, before we dig into what gospel formation is supposed to look like, I want, to really, I want you to really see that Peter is really giving us a, a call to ourselves as a community, that we would all see ourselves as a, a corporate gathering, that this question is being asked to all of us. And you see that, first of all, by looking all the way back to the beginning of Peter's letter in chapter 1, beginning of verse 1 and 2. Look what Peter says. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect... Strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. Now that language of being elected and chosen by God to be this particular group of people is, is a language used all through the Old Testament, actually, as it relates to God's calling of Abraham, first of all, in Genesis 12, and then the subsequent creation of this nation of people through him, people of Israel, that's this nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. But what's more is that when you look at the beginning of verse 9, if you look over there, you see Peter describe these believers in Jesus in this way. 
He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And very interestingly, if you look back to Exodus 19, you see this picture where God's people have now been redeemed out of their slavery. They're all standing around Mount Sinai. And through Moses, God says this to the people, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's the exact same wording of what God is, this promise he's speaking over his people, which means, listen, Peter is saying here in particular that all those who have come to Jesus, like it says in verse 4, you who have come to Jesus, the cornerstone, Jews and Gentiles alike, you are now the true Israel. You are now the true people of God that's chosen and precious to me, and then you now have the fulfillment of these promises that I gave to God's people all the way back in Exodus. That's, that's who the church is now. All those promises now apply to you, which if you know Peter's story is actually an incredible thing to hear him say. Because if you know what happened to Peter back in Acts chapter 10 when he was chilling up on the roof with, uh, of course, kosher snacks and nothing else, and he has a vision where God lets down this sheet with all these ceremonially unclean animals that he would never touch. And God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He was the most devout Jew. No, there's no way I will do this. And yet now, to see Peter saying that this is who the church is, this is who the gathering of God's people is, that he understands. He's one of the very first people to get and understand God's vision for the church, that it's a gathering of all the nations of the world. Not simply just ethnic Jews. It's God's people is all the nations of the world. That's who he's calling to himself. So if you're a believer in Jesus here this morning, what Peter is saying to you particularly is that it's your belief in Jesus alone, not some kind of ancestry of Abraham as your father. Your belief in Jesus alone makes you one of God's chosen people. It makes you one of those living stones that is built into this spiritual house for him to dwell in. And I'm sure glad about that. Um, and then beyond that, honestly, one of the most simple things that we can see that God is really asking this question, who have I called you to be, to all of us, is that all through this passage, whenever Peter says you, you do this, or, or you are like this, it's always written in the plural form. The plural form is always, it's all of you. If, if you were from the deep south, it's all y'all are, are this, or, or that, all you are this. That, that's that's the, the way that he's saying. It's all together. As one commentator pointed out, there's only actually one place in the New Testament where God refers to us individually as being a temple of the Holy Spirit. In every other instance, it's plural, it's corporate, it's speaking to the church as a whole. So, I, I hope now that we've established the fact this is a, a community call, God is calling to us corporately, who have I called you to be? We can now begin to look at who it is that God wants us to be as his gathered people. And the first thing we see is we are to be a community of gospel formation. If you go to a place like Romans 8, 29, I think what you see there is that gospel formation, that's that being increasingly formed and shaped more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus is one of the main purposes for him saving us. One of the reasons why he transformed transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That, that's why he does that. And you see, when uh, you look at the kind of things Peter is calling us to collectively as the gathering of the church, you see that gospel formation 
is God something that he desires for us collectively, not just individually. It's a collective call for all of us to be formed more and more into the image of Christ. And where you see that, first of all, is in verses 1 and 2 of the passage. Look with me there. Peter says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, most commentators agree that that therefore, the beginning of verse 1, is actually a continuation of what Peter was talking about back in chapter 1 and verse 22, where he said, God's church is to be a place where we love one another deeply from the heart. Remember, Jesus' own words were that the world is going to know that you are my disciples, not by the doctrine you know, not by the verses you can quote, but how you love one another. That's going to be the defining mark of a disciple of Jesus. And so, carrying on with that, you look at the description Peter gives here for how we love one another. It's what it's supposed to look like. He's using this language of gospel formation, this language of spiritual formation, of, of putting away, literally, the Greek is almost like taking off clothing, where these attitudes and actions that keep us from loving one another well. I don't think that's hard to imagine, that deceit and hypocrisy and, and envy, those things help, they, they make it really hard to love one another when we're treating each other that way. So it's this, that's a part of our gospel formation. And then also, craving this pure spiritual milk of God's word that will help us grow up, mature in our salvation. This is something that needs to be formed. It starts out as babies, and we need to be formed and grown and matured in our faith. Now, in describing the, the hearing and teaching of God's word as pure spiritual milk, uh, theologian Wayne Grudem notes, this isn't meant to imply elementary teachings. It's not like, oh, you just need like the, the baby milk. You need to start there. Like there's other places where Paul talks about it like that. But here, what he means is, is more uh, of a taking something in. As, as he says it this way, uh, reading or listening to God's word involves a process of taking information into oneself. A process more readily represented by a metaphor of drinking milk, taking it into one's body than maybe some other activities, such as prayer or praise, which more clearly involves giving out. So that, that's why he's using this imagery of pure spiritual milk. It's this idea of feeding on something we take into ourselves and it helps us to grow. And all of us understand that, that analogy of how babies are grown quickly by this very nutrient-rich milk that they're given. The other place I think you clearly see the language of gospel formation is in verse 9. Look back with me there. Again, Peter says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, belonging to God. And then carries on in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now, <clears throat> a number of things are going on here at that with all this language of, of being a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Holy has this idea of being set apart and, and separate. But even more explicitly, when he says we are to be aliens and strangers in the world, it's clearly a call to live lives that are set apart from the world, that are patterned after the life of Christ as opposed to being patterned after the surrounding culture around us. It's a call to gospel formation. And I think including that language of spiritual warfare at the end of verse 11 also is a key part of what it means to be increasingly formed into the image of Christ. Because as living stones chosen and precious to God, we are to love the things that God loves and to resist, to set ourselves against the things that make war against us. 
We're not to acclimatize ourselves to them. We're to make war against the things that are making war against us. That's, that's, that's how we continue to be formed. The key to remember, though, as we live that out, as we see what that looks like, is to remember what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, that our fight, the thing that we are supposed to be setting ourselves against, is not people. You hear that? We're, our fight is not against people. It's not against community groups or, or organizations. Our fight is supposed to be against principalities and powers of the enemy that are at work within the world. That's what our fight is against. That's what it means to make war as a holy nation. So I think it's clear that one of the first things God has called us to be corporately together as his church is a community of gospel formation, a place where out of deep love for one another, we strive to look more and more like Jesus by feeding more and more on his word together in a whole variety of different contexts and that we would encourage each other, that we would exhort one another to live lives that are set apart, that are alien to the surrounding culture around us. And beyond the absolute necessity of this reality for us to be a church that's going to live out God's other call, for us to be a community of gospel declaration, which we'll look at in a second, I think the goodness of God's call to us here is also just in recognizing God knows it's only together that we'll be able to be a community of gospel formation. We can all, he, he knows that's the only way it's going to happen, is if we do this together. Because the simple, plain reality is this. I need you to hear this. Although your salvation is something that happens between you and Jesus alone, almost nothing else in the Christian life is accomplished that way. Your salvation, you and Jesus alone, nobody else can deal with that. But everything else, every other part of that, what we've been called to be and called to do and called to accomplish happens together as the church, as people gather together supporting encouraging around one another. And, and we're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks as we start this next series next week, Procurvum, and talking about how God uses marriage and sexuality and singleness to, to help us to do that. But the reality is the church, that it's no less true in the church at the same time. God has placed us as living stones together. We've been built together upon the foundation of Christ. Why? Because it's only together that we can finally be everything that God has called us to be as the church. Now, yes and amen. Community is messy. It's hard. And we're going we're gonna to come out of this thing bumped and scraped and bruised all kinds of different ways because we don't do it perfectly. Expect that. It's, it's not going to look perfect. And on top of that, as I just said, we're always fighting against that spiritual jet lag that's calling us to, to pulls us to live out of our own identity, out of the old time zone that we came out of. But over and over again, you see it. The Bible knows nothing of a solo Christian who has moved beyond his or her need for other fellow stones to live out God's call to his people. It's not possible. We, we need each other. We need each other. And to deny that reality is to forego your only hope for continued gospel formation. It's one of the main reasons why, for those of you who are members of this church, you, you might recognize that our church covenant, so many of the things that we commit to as members of this church, how we want to live out our lives with one another, has to do with committing to community. Where we say we want to meet together regularly, we want to mutually submit to one another, we could rid ourselves of every sinful practice and attitude that hinders our gospel formation. 
Almost every part of our church covenant together is acknowledging, is a stated reality, a stated acknowledgement of the reality that we need each other. I, I need you to do this. You need me. We need each other if we're ever going to be this community of gospel formation that God has called us to be. Okay, so that's God's call that we might be a community of gospel formation and, and a little bit of what it looks like. So much more we could say. There's a lot more I want to say, but I want to continue to move us along. The last thing I want us to look at quickly is God's call on his church that we would be a community of gospel declaration. A community of gospel declaration. And we need to look at this not simply because it's of its presence here in the text that we're looking at, but because, as I've said to you many times over the years, it's present throughout the entire Bible. The call that God's people would be a community of gospel declaration. I have said it to you as recently as two weeks ago. When God saves us from the penalty of our sin, we are not simply saved from something alone. We're saved to something. We are not saved so that just we might enjoy being living stones built into God's uh, dwelling, this dwelling place for God. We're, we're, we're built into his kingdoms so that other stones might be gathered into the church as well. That's a part of what it means to be a living stone, that we would seek to gather other stones into the same gathering. And where you see that call the gospel declaration, first of all, is right back in verse 9 where we just were. Look back there with me. Now, we already looked at the first part of the verse about who it is that God has made us to be as his chosen people. But in the second half of the verse, we now see one of his primary purposes in doing that. So you see again, he says, you're a chosen people, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Which means the formula God is presenting for us here is really a being this equals doing that. You see that? I've created you to be this in order that you might go and do that. And the that that God is calling us to as a church, being those who declare the gospel. So someone said, it's a, uh, the, but then the opposite is true. I think it's not stated here, but the opposite reality is also true. We flip that over. It also means that not doing that, not being those who seek to gather other stones and declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light, not doing that very likely means not being this. That we may not, in fact, be one of those chosen, precious, set-apart stones. Or at the very least, what it could mean is that once again, we are suffering under this spiritual jet lag. Because to cut yourself off to say, this is just about me and not about what I've been called to do, really what you're demonstrating is the very same attitude that sees church as primarily being about you and meeting your own needs. The only difference is now, now you're simply applying that to your salvation. Salvation is just for me. But me and God and me being saved and now I'm good and now I can just live out my life. No. It's a you are so that you may be. That's what God has called us to. But beyond declaring the gospel through our words alone, what you see in verse 12 is that we are also to declare the gospel through our actions, through our lives, how we live. Look with me there. Verse 12, so, so Peter tells us the previous verse were to be aliens, strangers in the world, but then along with gospel formation, Peter tells us the purpose of this, 
is that we might declare the gospel through our lives. You see, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Which sounds almost exactly like what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Which means, at least, that as we seek to live gospel-formed lives in this world, God will use our demonstrated gospel witness as well in order to call others to himself. Just something you see in Jesus' great commission, first of all. Matthew 28, and he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is, of course, what a visual representation of what's happened to us spiritually. It's a demonstrated witness of the gospel message. Jesus' final words to his disciples before his ascension, Acts 1.8. When the Spirit comes, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses and you will go and spread and take that witness. You will live out that witness and declare it from these nations surrounding, spreading out into the very ends of the earth. That is the call of what we are to be as this gathering of stones built together into a spiritual house. God's call to his church, chosen and precious to him, is that we might be a community that declares the praises of the one who called us out of darkness, the one who called us out of that circadian cycle that kept us lifeless and continually in darkness. He called us into light, into a place where we can now grow, we now have life. And we are to do that through both a spoken as well as a demonstrated declaration of the gospel. And if you've been at this church for any length of time or just look at your bulletin or the back wall, you'll know that that's almost verbatim what our stated purpose as a church is. We say that we want to be a community that, that, that brings about renewal in our city and world by demonstrating and declaring the transforming power of the gospel. It's both. It can't just be one. It's got to be both. But... Whenever we talk about a declared gospel witness, whether it's spoken or lived out, I think how we do it, it's always important to just reference and really think clearly for a minute about how do we give that gospel declaration? What does that look like? And I think actually we're given some really helpful direction in verse 12 again. Most of you know by now I'm pretty much a fanboy when it comes to Tim Keller. Uh, planning, <laughs> I quote him a lot here, sorry. <laughs> founding pastor and author out of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York. One of the reasons that I love his work so much is because of uh, what he talks about, his work on the church. <coughs> his work on the church and what it means to be this faithful witness, to be this who it is that God has called us to be as a church in the city. He's just done a lot of great work on that. And, and commenting on verse 12 in particular, Keller reminds us that one of the things that our gospel witness needs to have, our gospel declaration needs to be alien, but it also needs to be alien without being exclusionary. A really tricky balance to, to find. Our declaration needs to be alien, but also not exclusionary, which means our gospel declaration, because it's alien, will bring condemnation from the world. We will be looked at like we're kind of weird, crazy, wrong, off. If you know the history of the church, that's not a new thing. Uh, it's been that way from the beginning. Uh, our uh, looking at our attitudes towards marriage, sexuality, family, uh, money, all these things. The world looks at that and is like, you guys are crazy, repressive, uh, 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 
outdated. And now increasingly more and more, those views are harmful, actually. And yet what Keller says is that in many ways, for the world to look at our gospel declaration and see it as alien and strange, that's actually a good thing. It's good and right that we are declaring an alternative witness to the world. And that's actually a corrective to many mainline liberal churches today who want to present a gospel that so accommodates to the world that it's not alien or strange to anyone. That's a, that's a very different kind of thing. But, pause, before we start patting ourselves on the back. On the other side, it's also a corrective to ultra-conservative churches who would see the culture around us, all the wickedness and evil going on, and people doing all these bad things, and set ourselves against them and cut ourselves off, thus withdrawing the gospel influence that we're supposed to have in the world. When we see ourselves as we've got to be separate, we've got to close ourselves off from the sinners, which, sorry, we're, we, that's us. We cut ourselves off and withdraw the gospel influence that we are called to have in the world. It's got to be both. It's got to be an alien witness, but it's also got to be a witness that's present. I can't think of anyone who was compelled to follow Jesus by being shut out and condemned. I wonder what's going on in those church doors there. Maybe I should follow Jesus. No. That's not what happens, but I can think of all kinds of people who are compelled by a faithful, non-hypocritical witness, as much as possible, of a life truly transformed by the gospel lived out in front of them. And they see what it looks like. It looks strange, it looks alien, and yet somehow strangely compelling when it's presented, when it's actually seen and brought to them. So how can we really do this? How can we be this community of gospel formation and gospel declaration in a culture that all around us condemns us as aliens and strangers and in which our own spiritual jet lag is constantly trying to drag us according to living towards that old time zone that we were transported out of? How do we do this? Our only hope to do it, according to verse 4, if you look with me there, <coughs> is in coming to Jesus. That's our only hope building our lives individually as well as our church community collectively solely on the cornerstone of Christ who was himself rejected as well but who also lived a compelling witness that drew thousands when he was on the earth and now continue, continues to draw millions upon millions as the church continues to grow. It was a compelling witness however alien it looked to people. Now not being a builder myself I had to look up what a cornerstone was, uh, to see what does that actually mean and why does that matter in building. Uh, what builders and stonemasons in particular had to say about a cornerstone, especially in this historical context, was that the cornerstone was both the first stone laid, the primary stone that was built upon, as well as the strongest and most stable of all the stones in the home construction. It's meant to be the strongest of all the stones. If the cornerstone was weak, the walls of the home would be weak and eventually shift and fall. If, if the stone was placed anywhere else but in the primary position, same result. Walls are weak, eventually crumble and fall. And what Peter is saying here is that the exact same thing is going to be true for you and for me. The primacy of the position of where you place Christ in your life personally, where we place him as a church is going to determine the strength of our building. 
to seek to build your life individually or for us as a church to corporately build our foundation on any other foundation or stone is to invite eventual collapse and certain destruction. There's nowhere else to build. As Jesus I mean, reminds us himself at the end of his famous Sermon on the Mount, when he speaks of a wise builder who builds on the rock and the foolish builder who chooses an unstable foundation that looks advantageous. I mean, who wouldn't want beachfront property? But in the end, when the rains of adversity come, as they come for all of us, no matter where you build, only the house built on the solid foundation is left standing. That's why we sing in that hymn, On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. God has called us corporately together as his church to be a community of gospel formation as well as a community of gospel declaration. That's who he's called us to be. But as I pray you've seen, we have to be able to answer that question as God does individually or we're never going to be able to live it out corporately. You need to have God's answer to the question of why we're here, what we're doing in this church thing, or we're not going to be able to know the fullness of who God has called us to be as a church. We all need to understand this individually so we can live it out together corporately. But what I pray you've also seen is that God has called us, not just given us the call to be a community of aliens and strangers in the world, he's also given us the ability to truly live it out. For we can be faithful to God's call as we come to Jesus, our cornerstone, as we seek to give him the priority of placement in our own lives, as we seek to place him in the place of priority in our church, as we see him as precious above all other things. That's what he says in verse 7. You who believe this stone is precious. As we see Jesus as precious above all other things in our life, we truly can live out this reality of who God has called us to be as a church. And we can do that because the gospel that we are formed by and the gospel that we declare reveals to us a Savior who laid down everything he has, even his very life, because we were so precious to him. Amen.